0: soccer aficionados across the 50 states and beyond welcome back to another episode of it's called soccer not football not calcio soccer my friends i'm your host jake landau and alongside me is the man who understands both the physics of a black hole and why a soccer ball curves thomas godden the future doctor of the universe who still can't explain how england misses so many penalties How's it going, buddy? Dude, it's going great. Uh, it was a busy weekend in State College with
1: all the rain and the whiteout game, which was super fun. So I'm sort of still recovering a little bit, but glad to be back, talking some soccer, talking some U.S. Uh, men's national team, women's national team.
0: How's, how are things going? It's been a while since we chatted. Good, man. Everything's just very busy with the new job with the seven-month-old baby, <laughs> so uh, I am hoping to get more into a rhythm so that we can get back on track and have weekly episodes for everyone um it's been a while it's been a few weeks but on this episode we packed it tight uh we packed it tighter than a minivan heading to a youth soccer tournament so on today's show tom we've got greg berhalter and gio reyna hosting what could be described as a peace summit so forget camp david this is camp soccer Uh, across the sea in italy pulisic and musa are now starting for ac milan Um, I want to talk about this because for a team that has held the likes of Kaka, Maldini, Shevchenko, um, players that have once graced the pitch at the San Siro, I, it feels like America has gone global now with Paramount+, Plus with Serie A, and a lot of fans seem to be taking this moment for granted. So I want to get your opinion. I want to talk a little bit about what this time in history, what this moment in history means for the U.S. Women's national team. And last but not least, we bid adieu to a couple of legends. Not Freddie Adu, but Megan Rapino and Julie Ertz, they're hanging up their boots as they retire from the national team that occurred in send-off matches this past weekend. Julie Ertz, she's not going to be playing anymore for Angel City, so that was her last professional match. Megan Rapino will play um, until the end of the NWSL season. She had her national team send-off. Yesterday night. So let's talk about Gio Reyna and Greg Berhalter. Um, Jeff Carlisle from ESPN reported last night that Greg Berhalter and Gio Reyna have talked uh, in the last few weeks to kind of flatten out their relationship and reset, hit the reset button and get back on the right trend to um, have Gio Reyna rejoin this team in October, have the relationship be on the mend. Um, Tom, we, we know that Gio Reyna is an important part to this team. We've called him a luxury player in the past, mostly because of how well um, how how well all of our other players can be, and we know they can be. But I think if we're honest looking at the results um, and the performances against teams like Oman and Uzbekistan and then relate that to the Nations League games, when we had Gio Reyna playing at that 10 position with BJ Callahan as the manager, I mean what what are your thoughts now with Greg Berhalter and Gio Reyna kind of recovering their relationship a little bit? Is this going to be a critical juncture for the U.S. going forward? I mean, I think it was sort of inevitable that there was
1: going to have to. I feel like the U.S. Soccer Federation would not have hired Burhalter if this wasn't going to happen at some point. I, I think there's been a lot made of it, but, you know, if it hadn't happened, there would be some serious worries about Berhalter moving forward, I think, and you know, Reyna is a very talented player. He has almost a unique skill set in the pool. I mean, we've seen a lot of people try and replicate that attacking eight sort of style that he was playing at the Nations League. And I've not seen it from anyone on the Gold Cup roster. Or I've not seen it from the Oman Uzbekistan roster. It just feels like we don't have a Reina substitute in the pool. So it really becomes necessary to get him back in and see how he can do. I think it also becomes necessary to sort of Figure out what goes on around him. I don't think we've talked a lot about what we want to see from the midfield moving forward. It feels like Reyna has in the midfield, though, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, it's really interesting because Timothy Weah I thought was going to get way more playing time than Weston McKinney at Juventus, but even that's kind of flipped, where Weston has become an, a very important part of the starting 11 for Juventus. And Timothy Weah is, if he's on the field is playing right wing back, which we kind of knew mm-hmm. going to Juve and, and replacing Pong Podrado. Um, But Timothy Weah to me is the, the more dynamic right winger on the field, someone who can stretch the defense and play a few different ways. He's got great touch, great dribbling. Um, but Gio Reyna, I just think centrally does so much more for this team. He unlocks so many different avenues of passing he can split lines. He can find runners in behind with really delicate, um, intricate, creative passes. So I just feel like from a, a perspective of how do you get the most out of the most amount of your players? It feels like to me Gio Reyna is better suited for the middle of the pitch. Now, whether that's a false nine because Fuller and Balogun can't score <laughs> penalties and Ricardo Pepe isn't getting playing time, or if he's playing as that attacking eight, number 10 style, and we have I mean, then you just ask more questions yeah. of Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, Yunus Musa, De La Torre yeah. um, even got an assist for Celta de Vigo uh, on the weekend against Real Madrid. So we have options of like who those holding midfielders are. But I, I do think if Gio is healthy and available, we are better suited to playing a 4-2-3-1 with him in the middle and having three really great attacking players in front of him.
1: I, I think I tend to agree with that. I mean, it looked really good at Nations League. Um, my question becomes, do you think that the, A, do you think that the um, defensive capabilities that Reyna showed in Nations League are a feature of his game moving forward, or if that was a one-off thing? And assuming we're playing Reyna in the middle, who are his two partners that you're using? Are you going McKenney and Musa? Are you going McKenny and Adams? Is it Adams and Musa? What? How, what? How? How are you setting up the team going forward, assuming that there are only two midfield spots left for four very talented midfielders.
0: Yeah. Really interesting question because I I think my gut goes to, it depends on the opponent who we use for those two holding midfielders. Like if, if we're playing an opponent that's going to keep control of the game, maybe in England in the world cup, right. I would rather have Tyler Adams at the six um, Weston McKinney, probably as like a, a box to box eight, and maybe Gio Reyna, maybe Yunus Musa as like an attacking eight, um, just for like more stability. But then then I get to the point of like, if we're playing a Caribbean nation in Nations League or Gold Cup, I'd almost say that I'd rather have Weston McKinney and Yunus Musa as the holding midfielders because they're better at driving the ball forward and getting it into dangerous positions. Now, there's also a point that needs to be said on Tyler Adams, which is that when he's on the pitch... I feel like everyone plays better. He's a great captain and leader of this team. And even when we're playing higher up the field and we're playing against teams where we hold possession, he is great at playing in that kind of middle space and winning the ball back when, when we lose. So like if we're, if we're trying to play a high press, which we do play against teams where we're going to hold the possession, there's still a place for Tyler Adams to be here. Um, so I, I go back kind of to like the embarrassment of riches almost like it's, it's a good problem to have four players potentially that can fit in two different spots. Now that's going to give Greg Berhalter headaches. That's going to give a uh, USMNT Twitter, lots to talk about every time a starting 11 comes out. But I think that's the best outcome that we could possibly ask for when Gio is healthy and he's able to fulfill what we think he can be for the national team. I think he is someone that, again, just gives us something so much different. Whereas there's there's a lot of crossover between Weston McKinney, Eunice Musa, Tyler Adams, where you can kind of mix and match them. But Gio Reyna is a distinctly unique player for the U.S.
1: Mm, I, I agree. And, you know, especially if he's really turned up the defensive effort, I really want to see that at Dortmund now, um, then it really makes it impossible to drop him. If he is getting stuck in and winning balls in the midfield, I just don't see a way you don't stick him in the midfield somewhere and let him cook. Just sort of find the game and be that distributor. I think it would make Pulisic better. I think it would make Wea better. We already see how good McKennie, Wea, and Dest can be when they're really cooking on that right-hand side. So, I, I, yeah, I think that it's the best outcome for us going forward. It really becomes interesting to see how Burhalter sets us up because we did see some interesting wrinkles in this last window, and it, if you give him in Tyler Adams, if you give him Gio Reyna, and you're really improving that midfield, so we're not seeing Tanner Tessman being charged with doing all of our build-up play, then how do we look? What is the style we're playing? Are we playing that AC Milan tucked-in style that we were trying during this last camp? Are we trying that 5-3-2 that we like to run an attack? I, I think burhalter has got a lot to experiment with, and I expect him to tinker a lot going forward. But like yeah. we saw at the World Cup how little depth we had in the midfield. This sort of feels like the first step to
0: building true depth that can actually compete on a world stage. Yeah, and Greg Berhalter, when he first, when he I was going to say when he first joined, (laughs) when he got rehired, uh, he made a comment in an interview that ideally he would want to go into the next World Cup being able to play a four in the back system and a five in the back system. I think if everyone is healthy and we have Gio Reyna in a spot that is kind of like the attacking eight, and we feel good about his defensive efforts. I could see a 3-4-3 three, three working really nicely for this U.S. team with Tyler Adams as kind of the more defensive player sitting in front of that back three. But if, we have options. Uh, if we did a 3-4-3, three,
1: three, would you sort of take Weya and slide him to a right wing back and shift Dust over and
0: go for yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, De- so Dust could play the left wing back. Anthony Robinson, too, like, he could play that left wing back position. I think just giving us width in the pitch, um, and kind of, again, getting all of our best players on the field. Um, even, like, if we played a four-three-three, or, uh, if we played a 3 4 um, I could see us putting Gio Rain on the right wing and having him tuck inside while having a more stable midfield of maybe Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams. I can see that. Yeah, I it seems like there's a lot of flexibility. It would be kind of fun to see what
1: we could do with, like, Richard Dream and CCV in the back and just... Yeah. just It feels like there's a lot to experiment with, and we could really have some fun with this team going forward. So I really hope Berhalter does experiment with some different formations, some different combinations of players. We don't just sort of see the same thing we saw in that 4-3-3 going into that last World Cup. So it's going to be interesting to see how we play. We've got two really cool friendlies coming up with really good teams. I'm going to be at that Germany game, and I'm really excited to see what it looks like. Um, Let's go. And then, you know, we get some competitive games coming up immediately with those Nations League games in November. So yeah, yeah, it's it seems like there is a lot. If we can get the players healthy, there's a lot we can do to really tinker and see what this team is capable
0: of over for the next six months. So Tom, fold up that space time continuum. <laughs> look into the future. Okay. Tell us now what is the next thing that QSMNT is gonna be upset about. I mean, it seems like there might be some dr- drama on the horizon with
1: uh, strikers and the striker rotation. I feel like that's where we're headed. If, if we get the midfield sorted, if Reyna's playing in the midfield consistently and rotating everyone else around, it feels like the drama becomes the striker. And then I think from there, it becomes who becomes the backup winger for Pulisic and Weah. There's a lot of young talent there. There's a lot of older talent there. Um, there will be, I think, some drama and who ends up coming off the bench when we eventually sub out Pulisic and Wea. I, mean, I think Aaronson's first off the bench, but then you've got Paredes, you've got uh, you've got Taylor Booth if he ever gets healthy. You could put Malik Tillman there. You could bring up someone like uh, oh, there's so many names that uh, across the board you could start to call. Diego Luna could play in that role. It just sort of feels like. There's going to be a lot of contention for that last spot, and it could end up getting a little nasty as people start to pick favorites.
0: No mention of John Brooks. (laughs) Oh, gosh, I forgot about him. (laughs) You know what? The USMT is the greatest drama on television. Change my mind. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, Brooks has been playing well. So, like, I wouldn't be opposed to seeing Brooks
1: get a call-up. I still have – I don't know if you feel this way, too – I still have extremely lingering doubts about Brooks's athleticism and his ability to play at the international level. Still, I know there's a lot of people who will disagree with me and probably going to get a lot of crap for saying that. But he, Brooks feels like to me a player you have to scheme around to really get the most out of him, and I don't really feel like scheming around John Brooks gets the most of our of everyone else in the field for the U.S.
0: If Pellegrino Matrazo and John Brooks ever want to play in a four in the back system, until Greg Berhalter changes anything. <laughs> That will be the day when when I will want John Brooks back with the national team. I do think it's it's kind of I'm going to call it petty. Uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation they put out like a calendar every weekend that has USMNT players on it, and it goes all the way down to you know players that are outside of the 23, right? Players mm-hmm. that are playing in Belgium and uh, the Netherlands, wherever. John Brooks isn't on that list, and it's like he's on a hoffenheim are in the champions league spot right now in the bundesliga with pellegrino maturazzo an american coach coaching him so we'll we'll see i doubt that he will ever be back with the national team at this rate just reading the tea leaves across u.s soccer
1: yeah i i agree i i feel like it's just not in the cards it would be it you know it'd be good to sort of see him come back and i don't think he's out of the picture but there's a lot of work to do there, and I don't think that that's going to happen fast.
0: In the never ending debate of number nines for the US men's national team, Boller and Baligan was seen as a savior when he committed to the US, the one forward to rule them all, covering the World Cup glory in 2026. But on Friday, he missed not one but two penalties for Monaco as they lost a critical early season match, one to nothing, to rivals Nice. While a few hundred miles north of him, Ricardo Pepe secured his fourth goal in five matches for club and country. Tom, we're only three weeks away from the next round of matches for the U.S. as they take on Germany, who look like the Chelsea of national teams and World Cup dream crushers Ghana. So I want to ask you, is the number nine still up for grabs for the national team? I mean, it has to be right now. I mean, Balogun, I'm not worried about the two penalty misses.
1: You have bad games. I did the math on it. If you have XG of .79 for one penalty in a game, missing two is like a 4% chance to happen. Not rare. or Not, not common, but not unheard of. So, like, you know, he'll get more chances. He'll score some goals this year. But... Hevy has been on fire. I mean, he scored two great goals with the national team over the last international break. He's not getting many minutes for PSV, but when he's playing, he's scoring goals, and he seems to just have a knack for finding a way to create his own shot, create uh, goal-scoring opportunities from nothing, and does a good job of putting them away. So I think that it's likely that he continues to do that, and he deserves some minutes with the national team. But if you have those two players who are still you know, struggling to find their form, either with minutes or goal-scoring record, then there's a chance for someone else to sneak in. Unfortunately, we don't really have a lot of options to sneak in right now. So I think there's a lot still up in the air. We have Vasquez and Ferreira, neither of whom are really on fire in MLS. Sargent and DK are still both hurt. Haji Wright's still not really gotten started for Coventry in the championship. So I think there's still a lot to to sort of figure out with the striker position, who's our 1A, who's our 1B. I think Balogun and Pepe have to be at the top of the list, but even below them, there's still some names we want to see when we get some people back healthier in form. It
0: does seem like a two-horse race right now. And credit so much to Ricardo Pepe, because after what he's been through and him missing out on the World Cup roster, I mean, it would have been very easy to kind of hang everything up not really care, you know, make his move to PSV. But here we have this young kid who, like Fuller and Balogun, an Arsenal player gets sold for $50 million. He's committed to the U.S. It feels like he is the striker that the U.S., like if we are a club team, has spent $50 million on and we kind of have to start him. While Ricardo Pepe is like our academy kid who can't stop scoring in actual games. Um, so, yeah. I just want to say credit to Ricardo Pepe for kind of keeping that high-level mentality. Uh, There aren't a lot of young players that could have kind of come back from what he's been through, his relationship with Greg, the World Cup uh, not being there with the team, to now be challenging a player like Fuller and Balligan for a spot in that number nine position and potentially to be the starter for the U.S., well, and they play the position so differently it's almost so great to have both of them
1: because it's a really a great one-two punch you have a player like balligan who really likes to have the ball at his feet who really uh, tends to want to combine uh do a little bit of soccering. ring when then you got peppy who just makes stuff happen whenever he gets the ball he likes running in behind he likes playing off of deep vertical passes and so you have kind of got this really nice one-two punch of you know really talented players and it's exciting to see how they develop and what's going to happen going forward. Eh? You know, it's almost an embarrassment of riches now, like having those two different options that we can play when we need them.
0: Yeah. And before Josh Sargent got hurt, he, he was kind of fitting himself in to be the third option in that number nine. I mean, he was just scoring for fun. He looked like he was having fun again on the field until he had a, an ankle injury. That's going to keep him out. Now, Tom, there are a few other players that are coming back from injury that look to be uh rejoining the U.S. men's national team in this October window. It, it was a weird one in September, right, when we played Oman and Uzbekistan. Like, I know the U.S., uh, they 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 went through their ad agency training to basically say, you know, these are the eighth and ninth best teams in Asia, we'll play them in the World Cup when it's expanded to 48 teams, blah, blah, blah. Um, but really, it wasn't much of a test in those two matches. Now, the ones upcoming in October, Germany, who, like I said in the intro, are kind of the Chelsea of national teams right now. All the talent in the world and no results to show for it. They've since fired their coach, uh, Hire Nagelsmann, who uh, has been seen to be one of the best up-and-coming coaches in the world. So you don't necessarily always see those types of coaches join national teams this early on in their career. Um, but they'll have Nagelsman at the helm for his pr- first match, which will be against the U.S. And then Ghana, who... You know, if you've just started following the U.S. in the last four or five years, Ghana means something entirely different to people that have been following since the the 2000s. I mean, this is a team that has continually had our number in knockout stages of the World Cup, knocked us out multiple times in the 2000s. So, Tom, now that we're getting closer to kind of real tests for this national team, we have Balogun and Pepe vying for the number nine. We have Tyler Adams potentially coming back from injury at Bournemouth to get some playing time. Gio Reyna has made the bench, but not his debut for Dortmund this season. So what do you want to see across the rest of the team before we get to these matches against Germany and Ghana in October? I feel like we just need to see
1: minutes all around from everyone. It feels like there's a lot of players who are just not getting regular minutes who need to be. You know, we'll talk about Musa, who has just sort of clawed his way into minutes at Milan. We still have players who are, not healthy or just not seeing the field very much all across Europe. I mean, look at Chris Richards, who doesn't really ever play for Crystal Palace. Um, we've still got players like Malik Tillman or Pepe, who are still not seeing consistent minutes for PSV, although I think it's gotten better here recently. Um, West McKenney and Tim Weah are still sort of fighting to nail down their roles at Juventus. Um, it just feels like we just need to see everyone start to really establish themselves And then you get those guys back from injury who can possibly start to establish themselves as well. So maybe we can get some consistent rhythm before we start playing more national team matches. It'll be interesting to see when Adams and Reina come back, where they're being played for club and what their roles are going to be. Is Reina still coming off the bench to be the super sub for Dortmund? Is Adams playing as a lone six or what's a dual pivot or what's the role he's going to be playing in that Bournemouth midfield? I just, you know, there's a lot. Of uncertainty right now with club positions for a lot of guys so you know still players like ccv that haven't seen the field this season yet would love to see them get back too
0: it's crazy how everything has kind of flipped this season like ccv was the locked on starter for celtic when Ange postacoglu was there he hasn't seen minutes we have players like Serginho dest who hadn't been able to get on the 23 for ac milan or barcelona who is the bolted on starter for psv while Ricardo Pepe and Malik Tillman need to fight for minutes. So it's it's this weird upside-down world that we've entered in the 2023-24 club season with players that hadn't historically gotten all the minutes now seeing the field more often than those that had in the past. Um, Malik Tillman, one note from this, this weekend, he wasn't included on the game day roster because he overslept, according to Peter Bosch. So uh, one time, you know, it happens, but... If if this happens again or becomes a, a trend for him, that's got to be worrying for us. Why why can't we have just one one young player that reaches their full potential that has a an elite mentality? Why why can't we have that nice it, thing, Tom? It's
1: just it's so hard to have that that amazing amount of talent and that mentality. I think that it, it just sort of speaks to how hard it is to develop into a world-class player if you are a potential world-class youth prospect. So, you know, we just haven't gotten lucky
0: yet, I don't think. Yeah. On the other side, on the happy side, Christian Pulisic and Yunus Musa started a match for AC Milan uh, in a 1-0 win over Hellas Verona. Tom, I feel like this moment in USMNT history, uh, we, we've we spoken about this This is kind of a running theme across the 100-plus episodes of It's Called Soccer, is this... Feels like the years where you can really get excited about this national team. the the span of how many players we have. I mean, we're. I'm just going to use Pulisic and Musa as an example. But the fact that we had three players on the same team playing in a Champions League match on the field together. They did lose four <laughs> nothing to Arsenal, um, but that's besides the point. Three Americans were on the same same team on the pitch at the same time for PSV. Um, across the weekend, we had Tim Ream. Anthony Robinson, uh, Austin Trusty was on the bench for Sheffield United. We had Matt Turner in goal for Nottingham Forest. Um, when Tyler Adams gets healthy, he'll be at Bournemouth. There's so many players. Chris Richards was on the bench for Crystal Palace. I mean, I, I remember a time, Tom, when Stu Holden playing for Bolton was the pinnacle of my soccer existence. Okay? So I just want to spend a few minutes here thinking about what this means, what it means that at a historic club like AC Milan, it has Christian Pulisic and Yunus Musa, players that seem to really be growing into their own on the team, players that are um, building trust and relationships with fans that have seen, again, the likes of Kaká or Ronaldinho, incredible players. I mean, what what is this moment in time for the U.S. men's national team? I mean, hopefully it's a sign of things to come. It feels like we've hit this
1: sort of turning point where even if we have bad seasons, and like last year we had a rough season where players were at big clubs in Europe and by and large failed. Um, But it seems like we've turned a page where even when that happens, we don't just sort of lose all of our players who are playing at these big clubs. They just sort of go and find a new landing spot and, you know pick up the pieces, and move back on. I mean, who would have thought when we were having all the struggles we had last spring that we'd end up with two starters at AC Milan, two starters at Juventus, four or five players in the Premier League again, even after the Leeds trio got relegated, two players at Union Berlin. It it just sort of seems like we continue across the board to just pick up more talent that just finds a really great landing spot and keeps chugging along and keeps their career moving and continues to hit new heights which has never happened before in U.S. history we've had some players who scattered around played some really big matches for some really big clubs but it was a single player and generally outside of Clint Dempsey they didn't perform very well when they got there I mean look at Josh or Josie Alcantor I mean for a while that was the one you would wake up and we watch. don't mention him <laughs> <laughs> other than the Azad al yeah. season yeah <laughs> you you would go and you would watch Josie Altimore al Alvador fail to score a single goal in the Premier League. That was the one thing you would do. And now we've got, you know, twenty-five options every Saturday morning to go watch across Europe. It's spectacular and it feels as the development gets better in the US, as the MLS academies come into their own, as our U-20 team continues to get better as we go back to the Olympics next year, that this is only the beginning of more and more players continuing to push themselves and head abroad. And, you know, it seems like we are only going to become, this is going to be, only going to become more common that we see players at big clubs like this.
0: I think the best part about all of this and, and everything you said brings completely true is that most of these players are 25 years old and younger. Uh, they have so many more years to join bigger clubs to improve their performance, their their talent, and it does seem like when you know leads get relegated and we have three players go down, they they are worthy of bigger clubs. They're worthy of Union Berlin, of Juventus, of Bournemouth. And there's always another player to step up. You know when when Pulisic or Gio Reyna were injured for the first like four matches of World Cup qualifying last se- last year, Brendan Aronson and Timothy Wea like picked up the team. Brendan Ironson out of nowhere. He was at Salzburg at the time. So it's it's just like Kev, we have Kevin Paredes now. We have this U-20 team that has a ton of big names that will move soon to Europe or just crush it in MLS. And it feels like there's always a next name up that can step in and fill the shoes of whoever it was that held that spot before them.
1: Yeah, I, it's almost getting impossible to track it all. Like, you know, I used to be really good about my thought mob being immaculate and having every player who we <laughs> needed to follow. I can almost not even keep up with how many players that there are in the picture for the U.S., given how many players across Europe there are, how many players there are in MLS who are playing well. It just feels like there are 250 names that, like, are just sort of excelling right now. And that's never happened in our history before. So it's it's really spectacular to see. It's a special time. To be a fan of the US. It's a special time to be following US soccer. And it feels like this is just gonna keep growing as soccer continues to grow in the US, which is just super exciting to see. I, you know, even since we started this podcast, I've been sort of really interested in the US's historical results recently. I've been sort of plotting our ELO over time. And basically, from the minute we start this podcast, we see like a 150-point jump in the ELO, and typically when that happens for the US, we just crash back down to Earth. But it's not we've not crashed ever. We just sort of we have hit a new level of just good. Um, that we have not reached in years. And so it's just it's fun. We should just enjoy this ride because it's been it's been special and unique in US history.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say that about your your foot mob because so I'm at Men Blazers now. There's a newsletter called American States United, which basically tracks all of these US players across the weekend. You can get it weekly; it updates you on everything. But even the editors for that newsletter are like, "We we need to cut some of these players. <laughs> like, there's too many things happening where, like, before you cared about what happened in the, you know, to Lyndon Gooch at Sunderland. Yeah, he he's like twentieth option now. Okay, <laughs> we we could probably put him aside for a little bit unless he does something outstanding. Yeah. Now now we're at a point where like the top 100 across Europe across MLS, across wherever. We have even like Zendejas in Mexico. There are enough players to keep the content rolling. 100 plus players that are just doing incredible things. And again, there's always someone out there that we haven't discovered Maybe Ben Akremeschi is going to go abroad and just become something crazy. So Christopher Lund at Palermo in the second division I come out of nowhere. I had
1: no idea he yeah. existed until he was called into the team. <laughs>
0: like they're just everywhere. They're they're spread out. They're everywhere. There's so many of them, and that is so different from what we've historically had. And the growth feels like again when like you said when we started this podcast, it was the the summer of 2021 it felt like an inflection point, but you didn't really know what the future held. And it feels like we're in that future now. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, when we started, we were speculating
1: a lot on like what would happen with some of these younger players going forward. I mean, Brendan Aronson was still in MLS. We still had Mark McKenzie in MLS. We had just like all these names that potentially were looking at moves. And like very quickly after that summer, everyone makes their moves. And we just sort sort of hit this exponential rise in like, talent in Europe that was not just playing in reserve teams, not just playing in academies, not just getting spot minutes. They were starters for good teams in Europe. And that has just sort of continued to become a trend over the last few years. And it really doesn't feel like that trend is slowing down anytime soon.
0: Yeah. Well, if the U.S. men's national team is on an upward trend, we probably have to mention that the women's team uh, did not meet their expectations in the 2023 World Cup I won't call it a downward trend just yet, just because of how many exciting young players we have. Alyssa Thompson, Sophia Smith, Trinity Rodman are going to bring us into the future. And we have to say goodbye to the past this past weekend. Tom, we had some send off matches for some legends of the game for the US women's national team. Julie Ertz last week at the end of last week, got her send off and Megan Rapinoe last night, got her send off as well. They played their last matches for the national team. Um, Tom, Megan Rampino probably deserves her own kind of episode of just everything she did, everything she stood for. And no matter what you want to say about her off the pitch, she was a generational talent for the U.S. Women's National Team. And it's funny, too, like you kind of look at what she was and and how she was up until like 26, 27 years old. She was introverted. She was kind of quiet. She didn't give a ton of interviews. She didn't have, you know flamboyant hair things that you could pick her out on the pitch and it just feels like she kind of found herself and and really like built that confidence because she knew she could take on anyone on the field and that just led to other things in her life that she wanted to take on as well so maybe let's mention my put her on the side for now because i want to say julie ertz stalwart of the women's national team i mean just incredible defender incredible tackler, incredible leader for this team. She had a baby, Madden, a few years ago, uh, took some time off, didn't think she would ever come back to the women's game to ever play again. Angel City picked her up to be able to let her get into fitness for the World Cup. She played at center back, uh, a place where we didn't think we would see her during the World Cup, and she was one of the highlights, one of the stars for the team, again, in a disappointing round of 16 loss. Tom, what does it mean to you now that we're saying goodbye to the Julie Ertz's, and the Mega Rapinos of the world? I mean, I think it. there's nothing that speaks higher
1: to Julie Ertz's career than she goes and she wins World Cups. She wins Olympic medals. She is a stalwart of the midfield. I think she's probably one of the big reasons we won the 2019 World Cup. Her and Sam Mewis in the midfield were basically just rocks and let Rosa Lavelle cook in front of them. Um, it speaks volumes that... Vlako Andonovski's solution to losing Julie Ertz in the midfield was to bring back a Julie Ertz who had not played for two years out of retirement to play defender because she was just that irreplaceable. It's still sort of is this biggest open question that we have for the U.S. Women's National Team is how do we replace Julie Ertz because she is, you know, she was so athletic and such a good leader and just made plays all over the field, put out fire. She she was, I'd say that she probably. To use a men's national team comparison, she is Tyler Adams if Tyler Adams was a world-class version of himself. Just puts out the fires all over the field. Also was six inches taller and could, you know, head the ball much better (laughs) than he can. But um, a goal-scoring threat on corner kicks. uh, Puts out fires all over the field. Excellent possession. Very press-resistant. Just a very supremely talented athlete and player, and I still don't know how we're going to replace her. There's got to be a long list of people who will have to be tried out to sort of find that next generation of defensive midfield talent we know that it's probably not (laughs) going to be um Andy Sullivan but beyond that I don't know who will end up stepping into that role so we will definitely miss her Rapino, you know also legendary career I will definitely miss seeing her play her list of accomplishments is basically unparalleled for the U.S. Women's National Team. It feels like it'll be a little bit easier to replace her just because of the insane talent we've got coming up at the wing. I mean, Alyssa Thompson, Mia Fischel, Trinity Rodman, um, Mallory Swanson, Sophia Smith can play on the wing, although I don't really want to see her on the wing that much going forward. It just sort of feels like this has been coming for a while with Rapino
0: where it hasn't been with Ertz. Yeah. I think it's it's funny that you say that because it, it does feel like that, even though Juilliard's had played for two years yeah. <laughs> before yeah. this year. And <laughs> I, I do think it speaks to what you were saying, just how difficult it is to replace her, that Blackco had two and a half years to find a replacement, to figure out how do we cover that space. And you just can't. Yep. You just can't with Julie Ertz. So it, I I do think like both of them are in the same echelon, like two World Cups each. Uh, an Olympic gold medal. Um, I, I want to just highlight a story. Julie Ertz, uh did an interview. I'm sorry there's so much crossover with Men in Blazers, with Raj. And when I was editing the video, she made a mention of the warm-up that the women's team had in the 2015 World Cup final. And if you remember that game, they, they went up like 3-0 after 10, 15 minutes and just yeah. cruised to the game. She talked about the warm-up in that match where it was like, Every single pass was as crisp as possible. Every single touch was incredible. From the first name on the list to the 23rd name on the roster, everyone was just like switched completely on. And she knew like they were going to just completely dominate that game just based on how well everyone was doing in the warm-up. And I just like, it, it will be a, a huge thing to replace her. We need to figure out, there's not really a ton of young names that play in that position that are at the level or have the potential to be where Julie Ertz got herself to be. And for two of these legends, like I think we're not probably far off from seeing Alex Morgan potentially drop off the, the national team after the Olympics next year. We, we still have the Olympics next year. It wasn't like these players didn't have a, a competition to prepare for. Um, but I do think this will be the start of a trend for the women's national team where we kind of see a changing of the guard happening across the board because we have so many players that need to kind of step aside for more people to come in and really take the mantle from them yeah
1: i agree and you know i think it's a long time coming i think there was some frustration at this last world cup with seeing names like rapino be the first name off the bench i would really happy to see her on the roster as just a leader someone who could be in the huddle someone who could be in the locker room someone who could be there to like show you how to warm up before a match and really bring that intensity but i think It's time to see some younger names on the field playing well, really making an impact when we get into these important matches. And there are some really talented names that are coming through. I don't know if you – did you watch both these matches?
0: I watched the Julie Ertz one.
1: I I think that there's also hopefully going to be a changing of the guard and the coaching staff coming soon. I don't know what you thought of that match, but I watched both and, oh, my gosh. It's just so slow. It's so methodical. They don't really generate much danger. They don't really seem to take advantage of our strengths. And it's just really time to get some sort of revamp in the coaching staff because the tactics just feel so stale.
0: It's really tough. And I hope that the U.S. Soccer Federation and Matt Crocker take this extremely seriously because the rest of the world is. And we kind of missed out. Like we, We got slapped in the face in the World Cup because... I don't think we were expecting so many of these players, so many of these teams, so many of these coaches to have caught up to us. And I think it's fair to say, like the rest of the world has caught up to the U S we should still be one of the premier teams and vying for every single gold and championship and trophy that there is on the international stage. And at the same time, I look across the board at some of these coaches that are coaching uh, England, Germany, Japan, France, like Herb Renard was coaching France at the World Cup. He had just beaten Argentina in the Men's World Cup in November. I don't know if I trust us to find the best possible coach for this moment in time and take this as seriously as we have to, because if we don't get this moment right on who the next coach is, this could have rippling waves and rippling effects in a negative way for the women's program for the next eight, 12 years.
1: I think that this sort of really speaks to where the whole world is catching up to us thing really hits us hardest. I don't really, you know, at some level, the way that you, women's sports is set up in the United States, there will always be some level of the, us having the best athletes and very talented soccer players coming through the ranks just with the way that, you know, youth soccer works, how many girls grow up playing soccer and watching the U.S. Women's National Team. We're always going to be really talented, but I think... The coaching development in the US is so lacking compared to Europe, and you're going to start to see that become more and more apparent unless we keep making good hires and then unless we keep developing you know, better coaches in women's soccer. This is a huge part of growing the game going forward is coaching development, and you can probably speak to this more than me, but it feels like that's where the women's team is really going to struggle unless we you know, really make that a em- point of emphasis over the next 10, 15, 20 years.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's almost a a brain drain happening in the women's coaching game because, in you know, 20 years ago, if a a coach, a high potential coach, came over from England or Europe, the U.S. was where the women's game was growing, where we had the facilities, where we had the infrastructure to really support that being a profession. You could be a women's coach and make a living in the U.S. I think what's happening now is like Jonas Idevall, who's the Arsenal women's coach one of the best in, in club soccer right now, um, Emma Hayes, Like they all have coached in the U.S. at a time, but went back to Europe to really play their trade. And I think like we're, we're going to miss a lot of those opportunities if we don't get our shit together, <laughs> Like for lack of a better word uh, or term. If we don't get our shit together soon, we will continue to lose out on talent that is going to go back over to Europe instead of staying in the U.S., growing the game here, and having kind of like a a tentacle attached to the U.S. Yeah, no, completely agree. So this is, I think
1: this is the next really great area going forward for us. And, you know, for a while we had this huge advantage because of Title IX. We had so many NCAA women's soccer teams that needed coaches that, you know, it became a really good spot to have a, you know, a cushy university job and have a career in this. And now... You know, NWSL is small. There's still not a huge academy system set up in the U.S. It just doesn't feel like there are a lot of professional coaching opportunities and specifically women's soccer. They're growing, but it's at a much slower rate than I think that the men's game is growing. So this is, you know, maybe one of the areas where U.S. Soccer Federation has to see the most growth and expansion going forward.
0: Yeah. Well, U.S. Soccer Federation has a lot on their plate right now to figure out. Uh, Tom, that's it for our episode today. Uh, Guys. I really hope to be back weekly. I will try and make sure as much as possible to make that happen. It is me, by the way. Tom is trying to get me back on as much as possible. Um, I just need to dedicate the time. I need to do it. I need to figure it out uh, to get us back on It's Called Soccer, on the grind, on the weekly, (laughs) to talk about US soccer. Uh, Tom, what is your last word for the lovely people? Uh, Last word? You know, I think we've
1: done a lot of talking about the moment in time we're in and, you know, how historic this all is. You know, it you don't ever realize that you're living in the glory days until you're past them. And, you know, I think it's ti- a good time for us to sort of look at everything going on around us and recognize that this is the glory days of following American soccer. We are on possibly the most fun uphill trajectory we've ever been on as a nation. And so, you know enjoy it go find a team to support in the u.s go find uh, a team in europe to follow a player in europe to follow um go to some matches just en- enjoy the fact that so much soccer is happening and so much fun stuff is happening around us that you know and it's just a fun ride let's let- let's let's get
0: on the ride and enjoy where we're at i love the office call out there <laughs> yeah. uh my last word is that uh the new fifa game eafc is coming out i've got my team ready it's all women okay and don't talk shit because they are so highly rated but nobody is using them so they're very cheap right now uh so i got 88 sophia smith i have 86 mallory swanson i have 87 rose lavelle okay 85 becky Sauerbrunn. we're coming right at you and we're scoring these goals we're getting clean sheets we're taking on the rivals. We're taking on uh, Weekend League. Okay, this U.S. Women's National Team is coming at you on FIFA. If you see Landau Calrizian <laughs> with the full U.S. squad, you know it's me. And until next time, until next week, enjoy the midweek games. I think we have Juventus playing on Saturday. We have the U.S. Open Cup Final uh, Inter-Miami against Houston on Wednesday night as well. So we'll see you next week on It's Called Soccer. Peace.